we all agree that every child is capable of learning to read. The Institute for Multisensory Education has been helping teachers make that happen for 25 years by offering extensive training and virtual teaching resources. Learn how to apply MC's IDA-accredited Orton-Gillingham approach based on the science of reading by signing up for their virtual trainings this spring and summer. Visit mc.com, that's I-M-S-E dot com, to register for their free virtual overviews and learn more about their extensive list of summer courses. Welcome to part two of my discussion with the esteemed Parker Palmer, where Parker shares his wisdom, his many lessons learned, how important it is to stay on our growing edge, and the gift of gratitude. What a gift it is to bring you this episode. Enjoy. Um, you know, your, I, I listened to your, the last episode, uh, for, from 2020 and you, you and Carrie spoke really eloquently about, you know, the national discourse and some of the divisive rhetoric. Um, and it made me kind of think about in the educational community, especially in the community in which I work, um, you know, we've been kind of wrestling off and on with this concept of the reading wars and they've kind of gone on now for a couple of generations. Um, so I may have mentioned this to you uh, in an email, but I'm involved with a group of, of six other uh, people in the in this kind of literacy community. And we've nicknamed ourselves the Peaceniks because we just came together kind of about a year and a half ago, just united in this common interest of how do we neutralize the rhetoric specifically around these reading wars? You know, how do we advance conversations that would allow us to really listen and really focus on our shared goal. You know, all of us want children to learn to read. All of us want to do our jobs as teachers. Um, and I actually introduced the group to your book, um, Healing the Heart of Democracy. And we've talked quite a bit about these habits of the heart that you that you share in this book. And is if it, with your permission, I'd like to share those with our listeners. You so you. these habits of the hearts are uh, that we understand, number one, we understand we're all in this together. Number two, we develop an appreciation of the value of otherness. Number three, we cultivate the ability to hold tension in life-giving ways. Four, we generate a sense of personal voice and agency. And fifth, we strengthen our capacity to create community. And I think about, you know, um, all of those habits, I think, apply to so much of what we're trying to do when we engage with the other in any way. And in your podcast, that the last one of 2020, you talked quite a bit about that. You know, how do we bring people to the table and with that beginner's mind, with that humility, with that appreciation for the other, to have conversations of deeper compassion. And I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit more about that. 
Yeah, well, I'm glad. Thank you. I love the notion of your group because that's how this that's how this happens. You know, that's how all change happens. I mean, Wendell Berry once said uh, about a, the big crisis called the ecological crisis, but you could say this about any big crisis. He says everybody goes around looking for one big solution to one big problem, but he said that's not how big problems have ever been solved. Yeah. It's always been one big problem and a million million little solutions <laughs> yeah. you know and yeah, he's right. right and so those groups the kind of group you brought together is a, is a good example of that um so the, the first thing i want to say which of course you know and understand but just to be clear with others is that those habits of the heart i think are inarguably important if we want a participatory democracy, um, and they have to, at best, in the best of all possible worlds, they have to begin early. So those habits of the heart are things that should be taught in school, not just as maxims to be memorized, but as, as actions to be engaged in. So what does it mean in a classroom, even with little kids, to say we're to in, to inculcate the habit we're all in this together? Um, there, I you know I know that there are teachers who are able to do that, but there's there are also teachers who, for a variety of reasons, some very understandable, don't don't think about their work that way, and so I think it's important to think about your work that way. Yeah. What does it mean in a classroom as, as kids age? And, and some of these things have to wait for age appropriateness, right? <clears throat> uh, to then uh, teach an appreciation of the value of otherness or to teach creative tension holding, you know, or to teach voice and agency or to teach ways of building community rather than just being in mm -hmm. a community that someone else has built. And I think, you know, I, I know that all of these are teachable habits. I mean, we teach other habits. We teach, we teach competitive individualism really well, you know. Uh, we might want to stop and think about that. We teach a fear of the other really well. We might want to stop and think about that. <laughs> Who knows, you know. I'm just, I'm just saying. But uh, yeah. it's... it's um, you know, it's, it, it has to do a lot with what educators talk about as the hidden curriculum, um, which is about roles, rules, and relationships, and what gets played out in the doing of the thing itself. So the, the curriculum isn't always what's on the surface in the content of the lesson. It's also how we act out the learning of that content in the classroom relationships or the absence of creative relationships. Habits are always being taught in the in the hidden curriculum. And the, the example I've often used in universities, I think, is a good one. That you can teach a, a, a course on on uh, what's 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 required of citizens in a democracy, right? You can use good content. You can use all the right ideas and references. But if you teach that in a top-down manner sit down, shut up, here's the deal, memorize it, feed it back to me on the test. You are not teaching the, the habits of the heart that make them citizens of a democracy. You are instead teaching them to be servile students in an authoritarian society, because that's what it is in the classroom. 
And that people learn probably more at that level about these kinds of things than they do from the content of the words being spoken. Um, so, the, you know, there's so many depths to this that I think apply to educators of, of, all, of all sorts. And I think, again, I guess I'd loop back, Laura, to some of the things we talked about early in this uh, conversation about um, humility, uh, for example, beginner's mind, curiosity, um, honest, open questions, rather than, you know, advices and statements. These are the things that go into uh, resolving uh, you know, these are the things that go into listening well to people who differ from us and uh, creating the possibility of forward movement in, in your case around a, what has been a contentious battle where everyone shares the desire for kids to learn to read. It's not that the goal is different, but there are, the, there are these kind of, um, you know, uh, really sort of vicious sometimes uh, debates over who's right and who's wrong and who's gumming up the works and who's clearing the way. Um, but let's, let's reboot and start thinking about the fact that we have a common goal and then see where we can go for there, from there by being curious, inquisitive about where other people are coming from. Um, I, I once, somebody asked me once a question. I love questions because they make me think new thoughts. So they had, we were talking about these five habits of the heart at some conference or another that I attended um, and spoke. And somebody said in this big audience, they said, well, if you had to boil this down to just a couple things, Parker, what, what would you say? You know, what, what would you say about what are the core habits of the heart behind the habits of the heart? Right? <laughs> I can't wait to hear what you said. <laughs> and I said, okay, if I had to boil it down to two words, they would be these, which just came to me in, on the, in the moment. Chutzpah and humility. Boom, bingo. So- Mic drop, Parker. <laughs> mic drop, boom, yeah, we ought to end it right there. <laughs> I wish you all chutzpah and humility. <laughs> Thank so, you. Chutzpah, <laughs> of course, being that great Yiddish word, that a language that has so many great words, that, that says, have the moxie to speak your truth, right? To, to know you have a voice. Have the chutzpah to tell people how it looks from your point of view. Don't just lie back and, you know, try to avoid being unpopular or something. Have chutzpah. We, we need everybody to speak. And at the same time, simultaneously, in paradox with that, have paradox. humility, yeah. have humility. So that the inner attitude has to be, I think I know the, the, the answer to this. I think I know the, the right position on this, but you know what? I've been wrong before, maybe I'm wrong again. That, that's chutzpah and humility. It's, it's always, it's, it all, Humility always involves looking at yourself honestly and, and saying, 
you know what? I haven't always been right in life, even when I was dead certain that I was right. And so maybe this is another such moment. And I need to, after speaking my truth with boldness and clarity, not yelling or screaming, just laying it out there, I then need to back off and say, okay, let me hear how this looks from your point of view. And then I need to listen. You know, one of my favorite parts of, and I'm sure this is true for you, Laura, of the, of the uh, circle of trust process is that because we are forbidden to fix, save, advise, or correct each other, we can't do any of that for, you know, as long as the retreat series lasts. We are, the burden is lifted that has us, when we, it has us listening in what I think of as a, as a preoccupied or even adversarial way. So we, in normal conversation, where we think we have to fix, advise, save, or correct each other, like that's why we're here, right? Um, we listen, but always with a parallel track running in our minds in which we're saying, okay, what am I gonna say to this? How can I fend off this attack? Or how can I fix this problem? And, and that, that just distracts us from the simple job of listening. And, and if we listen, we're gonna understand more. Um, but if we've got this second track running, it gets muddled and it gets messy and it sometimes gets, you know, it moves somewhere in the direction of violence. Not a fist fight, but a combative stance, adversarial listening. But if we're relieved of all those burdens, I, I don't have to fix, save, advise, or correct you. I have no idea how to fix, save, advise, or correct you. So lose that notion. It's silly, you know. You don't have to be a big time philosopher to know. It's just silly <laughs> to think we can fix, save, advise, or correct each other. If we can rid ourselves of that burden, then we do the listening that gives us the data we need. And for me, for me, Laura, there's that statement is very resonant with a lot of my journey as a teacher. I, you know, I used to think like everybody thought, thinks when they start, because this is how we were taught that when I walked into a classroom, my job was to start delivering information, fill the 50 minutes, fill their notebooks, and, and you know, do it again the next time. Test them on it at the end of the term. But that, that was numbing for me mind-numbing, heart-numbing, became painful because I clearly was not connecting. And they weren't doing as much learning as I knew they were capable of. And so I started to realize that if I could learn to listen deeply to what they say in response to a prompt I make, they, they would provide me with everything I needed to, to know to take the next step in teaching them whatever this particular session was meant to be about. And, and as I listened, things would come up inside of me that, I, that didn't even factor into my preparation for this lesson. Because the longer you live, if you pay attention, the, the more you know, and it's, you have to trust that it's there to be retrieved when you need it. 
but it's more likely to be retrievable if you're listening and not trying to anticipate what, what you next need to grab hold of in order to respond. I mean, I, I walked into a university, uh, I was a guest, I, I guested for a session at a big university, uh, actually University of Wisconsin-Madison here in where I live. <clears throat> and the professor warned me in advance, now prepare a good lecture because that's what these students are used to, you know, 50 minutes of lecturing. And I said, well, we'll see. And I walked in and I said to the students, I know you're, you're used to a 50 minute lecture, but here's a little heads up. I'm gonna talk for about 15 minutes. That's it for my talk. And I'm gonna say things that I hope you find interesting and challenging. And the rest of this class, which I, would, which I think we all would like to be fruitful rather than a waste of time, is gonna depend on what you have to say after I do my 15 minutes. Um, and so questions, comments of any sort are welcome, but that's what we're gonna build the session on. So I talked for 15 minutes. I think it was a pretty good 15 minutes. And then I said, okay, floor is yours. And a lot of teachers know what happens then. You just sit there looking at blank faces in, in, in a classroom that's as silent as the tomb, you know. <laughs> and, and I said, I, di I didn't say anything. I just smiled at them and got relaxed and leaned up against the blackboard or whatever it was in this big room, sloping room of chairs with maybe a hundred students in it. And finally, you know, it's always one brave soul in the back and it's usually a woman who kind of raises her hand, yes, okay. please, what do you have to say? And uh, she said something and I, you know, I received it not only with respect, but with gratitude, because otherwise we're all dying on the vine there. Right? <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. The gratitude is real, yeah. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and we start, it started to build and the class just, you know, took off and it sang. So what you just said reminded me that this professor, when we walked out, to, she walked me out to take me to my car and she said, wow, that was amazing. I never... And she said, I noticed you used a technique that I hadn't thought of. And I, and I since I'm, I'm allergic to techniques, I said, well, what was it? I have no idea. She said, well, whenever somebody would raise their hand, you'd say, please. And whenever somebody said something, you'd say, thank you. I said, that wasn't a technique. That was me begging for help <laughs> and expressing profound gratitude that you saved my, that this student saved my bacon, right? So there's no technique there. It's just a human thing of help and thank <laughs> gratitude. <laughs> Pleading and gratitude. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's all it takes. That actually builds relationships. As we all know in our personal lives, if we go to somebody and say, you know what, I need your help, that's a compliment. And if we then say, thank you so much, that really was helpful. That's an ex a human exchange and it deepens a relationship. Yeah, 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 I, I, I love all this. You know, um, when you were talking about a way of listening that allows you to be fully present as opposed to using that time to formulate what you're going to say next. Um, 
you know, I used to I used to refer to that as deep listening, but really it's just good listening. You know, in other words, there shouldn't be a differentiator between listening and deep listening, right? It should just be good listening. Yeah, or yeah, listening with your whole mind, your whole attention, whatever. Yeah, exactly. That's that's just that's good listening. Yeah. I can't wait to um, for the for the peaceniks to hear this and uh, for us to talk about you know the intersection of humility and chutzpah. I think that's yeah. that pretty much sums it all up. Um, yeah. I'm, I think I'm grateful. You know these things come just from out of the yeah, blue, and yeah. you you say thank you. And, <laughs> yeah, please and thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, help, help, and help, thank and you. thank you. Um, so, you know, yeah, so yeah. It's all good. I live. I live by it. In, in any moment, I'm asking. So, what what chutzpah is required here, and what humility, humility. is demanded of me? I love that, um, because you know, one thing I think we have found in in this perpetuation of this this you know kind of reading wars uh, is that it, we can't just keep talking research at each other. You know, we can't just keep talking facts at each other. You know, that's not. It's not working. Otherwise, things would have changed over forty years, right? right. So, how do we you know, create those habits of the heart that allow us to be present and really listen and, you know, with a humble heart in order to realize we all have the same goal. And how are we listening to one another so that we can build a bridge that allows us to work together in the educational community toward that goal? Exactly. Yeah. And that kind of makes me think about... um, about mentorship too. And I know that that's been, you've mentioned that actually a couple times in our conversation. I know that's been very important to you. I read about you being a mentor to a founder of an organization called Breathe for Change. And so I just wondered if you could just talk for a minute about the importance of mentorship and how important that is for teachers to have mentors. Yeah, in my life, it's been absolutely critical. And um, I was just, I was very lucky uh, in my early years in, in college and in grad school and in my early professional years to have older mentors who, you know, kind of helped my, well, they very much helped my work along. And they were, this was usually in, in uh, collegial relationships. So I was invited into partnerships of various sorts and, um, you know, uh, found in, 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 in this case, it was all older men who, um, who, who wanted to help me develop whatever gifts I had. And, you know, they changed my life. Um, uh, eternally grateful to them. In college, as a first-generation college student at a competitive college, I, I always felt out of place. And I felt out of place at Berkeley in, in graduate school. Um, I, I was kind of running scared as a, you know, what I what I can imagine to uh, to be a pseudo intellectual or a, or flying false colors. It, it would kind of the feel the kind of feeling of fraudulence that I think a lot of academics are accustomed to or have known in their own lives, where where the thought is, if they ever find out how dumb I am, I'll, they'll kick me out of here, you know. I've gotten away with it so far, but surely I can't get away with it for much longer. And I never imagined myself writing a book. And, and indeed, in, in I, the first book was an accidental book. 
which kind of got me started. And that's another story that we don't need to tell here. But um, the, the mentor, I think, is first of all um, a friend um, who, who understands that there's, there's a particular kind of relationship here of an older person, the way I'd put it, who saw more in me than I saw in myself. I think that's the key to mentorship. So just as there's good listening, there's good seeing. And if we look at a lot of younger people, and I've done this over the years, who don't see in themselves what I see in them, um, it's a joy and a privilege to have an opportunity to not just give them a pep talk, but to invite them into a work that will evoke what I see and help them understand that there's more in them than they see. Um, you know, often in this culture and in academic life, we are, we, we get kind of abused really by uh, the culture and we run scared and we run with a sense of fraudulence and we are blinded to the, the gifts that we really have. Um, but the mentor comes along and, and says without saying it, I see something in you that I want to help bring into being. Um, and then often does that by, by saying, as my mentor has said to me, I'd like to bring you into this research that I'm doing, or I'd like to bring you into this project development that I'm doing. I'd like to get your point of view on this or that or whatever. So it wasn't just like a, a, a pep talk. It was an invitation to share in the work, which itself evoked more of me. And it wasn't, it wasn't like falling off a log for me to do those things. I had to do my homework. I had to work hard. And I worked hard, you know, partly because I didn't want to let down this person who had taken an interest in me. It, it wasn't about financial gain or professional advancement. It was just that there are some relationships that are so meaningful to you, you don't want to let the person down. And that's a big human motivation. So I think mentoring, you know, is, is, a, is an interestingly um, simple but complicated formula where all of those factors are at play. Um, and it, it gets recognized for what it is by the people involved. So that my mentors, um, most of my mentors, these older men, were people that I stayed connected with to the end of their lives. And as I said earlier, I'm still connecting yes. with one who's Amazing. 95. Mm -hmm. uh, because these are real relationships and not some kind of, uh, you know, utilitarian exchange. So do you think that being well mentored yourself has contributed to your placing importance in your life on being a mentor? Yeah, there's, there's actually a very distinct point in my life, Laura. <laughs> it's a good question. Excuse me. <clears throat> I remember the point in my life where no, no new mentor had come along for a while, like five or six years, because 
I was like, I was like, every time I stepped into the casino, I, you know, I, <laughs> some coins came yeah, out of gotcha. sometimes hit the jackpot and this stopped happening. It was like, a, I was treating it like I, my, my run of luck in Las Vegas has ended, you know? And then I thought, oh, that's a dumb way to look at it, Parker. The message here is quite clear. It is now your turn at age 50 or so, yeah. 45, whatever, to turn around and look for those young people coming up behind you and on your life journey and extend to them the gift that was extended to you. And so I began actively to do that, to keep my eyes open. And I've, yeah, I've been very fortunate to have a number of those relationships, including with, um, uh, Ilana Nankin, who founded Breeds for Change, who was a graduate student here in Madison and read something of mine and reached out to me and asked for a conversation. And I really liked her and her spirit and her vision for teachers a lot. And um, uh, it's her testimony that I was helpful to her in, in developing that project in its early stages. It's grown way beyond anything. I imagined, or I think she imagined at the time, but um, it's just a joy, you know, to to do mentoring of that sort, where eventually the the fruits of the mentoring go out to other people, and in Elana's case, a lot of other people, in very life giving ways. So, I just treasure um, uh, the, a journey, the journey I've had, where older people were, were so generous with me. And there's only, you know, these are gifts of, of huge proportion in life. And there's only one way to pass a gift like that along. And that, or there's only one way to keep a gift like that alive and that's to pass it along to someone else, yeah. pay it forward as they say. So it's been a joy to do that and continue to do that to this yeah. very day. I, I, I love that and I, I agree. I think that's that, that you do come to that moment where all of a sudden, mentors stop and i do i yeah. agree because i'm experiencing that now and 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 I, and I have been for quite a few years now and i do think that's kind of the arc i think it's part of the arc of our lives and those things happen as a natural course of you know moving into you know the wisdom years let's maybe put it that way yeah and, i think so i absolutely think i agree with that completely it's kind of an evolutionary arc you know it's like the, the continuation of the species in some ways yeah. yeah and you write about that um so eloquently uh in in grace gravity and getting old which i loved very much uh, and i i just love the way you just you speak very openly and candidly about this time of life and it's a frank, you know, this book is to me is a very frank look at aging. And I just wondered if you could share with our listeners, you know, some of the greatest lessons that you're continuing to learn in this chapter of life. Yeah, well, thank you, Laura. That means a lot to me uh, because that's, you know, I, I, when people ask me, so what's my, your favorite book of the 10 you've written? I, I've always had to say, well, the latest one, you know, that's, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's, the, uh, that's the update <laughs> yeah. on where I am. So. Yeah, I started writing that book when I think when I got into my mid 70s. And as I said, I'm 80, almost 82 now. And it's the book has been so helpful to me. It's like I, I open that book from time to time and say, Oh, right, that's what you believe. <laughs> you know, <laughs> how did you forget that? 
but it it really is has has kind of it codified some things that um, I'm glad I can return to. So, you know, the big picture for me on aging is uh, is not despair about the uh, growing limits of time, energy, all, all all of that. It's instead a sense that I'm truly one of the lucky ones. Um, on the planet. There are so many people who didn't have the privilege of getting to 82. And I never lose awareness of that. Um, and, it, you know, there's a deep sadness around the fact that around the world, the, the age of death is so much lower, in some places, half of my life's time. And how could one possibly kvetch or complain about being 82. Now, I understand that there are physical diminishments. I have some of those, there are mental diminishments. I have some of those. I don't multitask the way I used to. Um, you know, I'm at that point where I have an, an urgent need to come upstairs to retrieve something I need. And once I get up there, I forget why I came. <laughs> hey, I do that too. You know, and, and frankly, I don't think we're losing anything when we lose the ability to multitask. I think we're actually gaining when we lose the ability I, I to totally multitask. Agree. And, that's, and that's, that's the next blessing. <laughs> yeah, it is. Know, yeah. The, the blessing yeah. of just saying, okay, See, just, yeah. do one just do thing one thing yeah, and do it well, um, as well as you can. So there's that. Um, and at the heart of that is kind of uh, the cultivation of gratitude, which has become a very big part of my life. I mean, I, there's, I don't, I'm sure there are things that slip by me uh, these days, but I'm, a, I'm aware of much more that I have to be grateful for um, than, I, than I was in earlier years where I was moving so fast that I didn't notice uh, or value things to be grateful for. A, a quick example that I actually, that actually means a lot to me is that in our backyard, right out our kitchen window, we have a, a lovely, lovely small maple that is just glorious in the fall. And then it's, uh, when it's, its leaves fall off, it's obviously just the bare frame, the skeleton of that tree. But this year for the first time I noticed in the late fall and early winter, that that revealed this really interesting bark all up and down this tree. And that when the light was at a certain angle, which it was for several hours as the sun went through its, its uh, arc uh, after following the autumnal equinox, that bark was just gorgeous. It glowed, it, it, it had variation in shadow and shape and form. It was, it was like a sculpture. And it was just as beautiful as when it was fully leaved. And there's a metaphor there, you know, for all kinds of things. I mean, the, the surface lesson is be grateful for this new kind of beauty, even though it's not the one that you, that you had for three months prior to this. It's beautiful in its own way. And then there's, there's the, me the larger metaphor of yeah, so age strips you down and takes some of the leaves away, but there can still be a lot of beauty there if you look at it from the right angle. So there's that. I think gratitude is just permeates my life in ways that it's, my life has never been without gratitude, except when I've been deeply depressed. 
and you can't feel anything. But um, th this is a is a new a new level. And then you know one of the one of my the kind of stolen half stolen aphorisms or maxims in the book is old is just another word for nothing left to lose. So so get out there and take some risks on behalf of the common good. Well, I really believe that you know, and so you know in my in my political statements over this the last four years, I've gotten out there and taken some risks on behalf of the common good as I saw it. And uh, not everybody's been real happy with me about that, but. Uh, but but know, Parker, you've exercised your chutzpah. I've, it's you know? been chutzpah. You know, and, and you've been on your growing edge. I mean, that I think, you know, the growing edge never, it doesn't stop. You know, it's not like all of a sudden you turn 80 and it's like, I'm done with my growing edge. No, you know? no way. Yeah. No, it, it keeps growing. You know, it just, it keeps growing. Uh, and there's a lot of places we could go with that, but it does. It truly, yeah. it truly does. And there's an, there's another you know deep realization that came to me actually before the, all before I started aging consciously, um, which is that in the long run, it's really not going to matter to me what anybody else thought of me. Um, part of the developmental task is, I think, to claim your own right to. Uh, own your own words and activities, author your own words and activities, and care mainly about whether they have integrity for you. Because if you're doing that step by step, day by day, the, the, this whole notion of, of other people's opinion just fades. And, and you have a chance to show up in the world as who you really are, rather than what you hope other people uh, will think you are. Um, because really, there's no way for us to get inside each other's skin and figure out the, the whole puzzle of, of being human. We're, we're inside our own skin, and our task is to feel more and more at home in that skin, and more and more at home in the face of a very diverse and complicated Earth. I think those are two great human yearnings. So one thing that really comes to me has to do with mortality, which is a topic that's a little more in your grill when you, when you get to my age than it was 40 years ago. And here's a, just a flat out fact. I can't imagine a sadder way to die than with a feeling in the last minutes of my life that I never showed up on this planet as who I really am. I can imagine painful ways to die, but I can't imagine a sadder way to die than with the sense that I wasted 80 plus years of life not showing up with uh, my best approximation of fullness of self. You know, Thomas Merton, one of my mm -hmm. heroes, yeah. Um, wrote a brilliant line once. He said, most people live lives of self-impersonation, which I think is an astonishing insight. And I think the life task is to stop impersonating yourself and to be yourself, because we impersonate um, uh, out of fear for who we really are. And we, we shouldn't have that fear. We are who we are. And 
self is the main gift we have to bring to the world. So anything we can do to care for true self, not ego self, not false self, but true self, we're eventually doing on behalf of other people in service of other people, because that's really the only gift we've got to offer. Um, and to blow that by trying to live in the reflected mirrors of other people's eyes just makes no sense at all. And it deprives the world of whatever gift we might have to offer. So these are things that come clear with age. Um, and uh, I think that the, the whole business of, and I, I got onto it, I think years ago, even maybe when I was in my late teens, uh, this advice that's found in many wisdom traditions, which is, which St. Benedict of the Benedictine monastic tradition says, daily keep your death before your eyes. And if you stop and think about it or just go ahead and do it, that's not morbid. If you daily keep your death before your eyes, you realize what a gift life is and you want, you want to use it well as long as you have it. And I'm grateful for that insight. Mm. That's wonderful. Yeah, showing, you know, showing up as who you are is the greatest gift to the world. Yeah. Yeah. That's all. That's really all we got. Right. You're right. So yeah. So um. So I, as we as we kind of kind of wrap this up, I guess, which I don't want to do. Um, but but I do want to I do want to hear about you know what are your hopes for the work you're doing now and for the and actually for the work you've done. Like kind of what are your hopes for all that? Yeah. And yeah. what are you working? And, and what are you working on now, Parker? Well, I'd be glad. Thank you. I'd be yeah. glad. I've loved this, and I, I too wish it could go on for a long time. I I'm actually going to have to cut off in about five minutes. Oh dear. Okay. Uh, which I regret. So maybe we can do it again, Laura. I'd love to. Um, so what I'm doing right now and what was the other part? Um, just kind of what are your greatest hopes for the work you've done and the work you're doing? So let me, let me cut to the second question. I think a lot of what I'm doing right now is with Carrie Newcomer on the Growing Edge and with um, my own uh, frequent posting on my Facebook page where I do a lot of my political expression. I have a Facebook author page that now has a pretty sizable audience. Um, and uh, I, I know that I'm reaching an older crowd there, but I have other platforms run by other people uh, such as the Revolutionary Love Platform or the On Being Platform that reach a younger audience or the work of Greg Ellison, uh, a black scholar who's, who runs a program called Fearless Dialogues with whom I also partner. Um, so th those are some of my major uh, engagements at this time. I guess the thing I want to say truly, Laura, about my own work over the years is that um, while I um, own and am grateful for the work I've been able to do, at the deepest level, I don't think of it as my work. I think of it as our work. Um, you know, it's like if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? 
And what I feel most grateful for about this work that I call our work is that other people have found value in it and they have brought their own insights and uh, sense of priorities and engagement with their own truth and with the world. They've brought that into play in a way that has created something larger and richer than I ever, ever could have created by myself. So I really think of people ask me, so what do you want your legacy to be? And I said, well, I, I don't want to have my own legacy. It's our legacy. It's what, it's what we've created together. It's in community. And yes, a lot, some, of, some of that has been planted by my own long hours in the solitude of writing. And I love that rhythm between solitude and community. I love holding that paradox. But in the long run, it's our work. I'll give you a couple of just, I think, homey illustrations of that. People come to me and they, they thank me, uh, especially around in my writing around vocation, education, what it, medicine, whatever, <clears throat> and around um, depression, which I've written a fair amount about out of my own experience. And they say, thank you so much. You, you saved my life with that book, that chapter, whatever. And I say, well, thank you so much for giving me this affirmation, but I didn't save your life. You saved your life. I had the good fortune to be able to put words on paper that you appropriated into your own reality, a reality I can't possibly know and you worked with it in a creative way that turned out to be life-giving for you. So at best, let's say we did it together, um, but my part in that was small. I was simply telling my story and I'm glad that you found your story in it and were maybe able to rewrite your story as I've been able to rewrite mine. So that's to me at a very deep level with all sincerity, that's why I say it's ours. That's the communal piece. There's another story that relates to the solitary piece that's I always, it's kind of funny, but it's, it's uh, and spiky, but it's true. <laughs> so from, I don't know where I got this instinct as a person who didn't ever think he could write a book, but the very first time I sent a manuscript to a publisher, they responded to me with the same thing that every, publisher since then has responded through 10 books, <clears throat> which is we like your manuscript, we want to publish it, but now you have to get on the phone with our promo person. And the question from the promo person is always the same. Who is this book for? Who is this book for? Because these, these are the salespeople, the advertising people. And my answer has always been the same. Well, it's for whoever buys it. <laughs> and, and Hello. <laughs> their response is always the same. It's like, oh, come on, Parker, don't be a wise guy. That's not helpful to us. Who, who, who's it targeted to? And I've said, look, honestly, this is an honest answer, and it's the best answer you're going to get out of me. I didn't target this book at anybody. I cannot tell you who it's aimed at because it's that's not what animates my writing. I can, I can only tell you where it comes from. 
not where it's going to. to. Mm -hmm. And where it comes from is the deepest place I can reach in my own life around issues of vocation, discernment, community, democracy, leadership, whatever. But in the confidence that if I'm able to write from that deep place in myself, I might have a chance of touching that deep place in other people. And I'm so grateful for whatever the source of that original insight was that had me saying, whoever buys it, you know, the only thing I can tell you is where it's coming from, not where it's going to. Because I've been very lucky, and I've got demographic data to show this, that, you know, I'm a white, straight, well-off male human being, and now an old male human being. Um, but my books have had an audience in the LGBTQ plus community. They've had an audience in, among people of color. They've been translated into Spanish uh, for that population. There are a dozen or more translations into languages mm -hmm. all over the world from Serbia to Vietnam to uh, last, last year, there was this big courage to teach conference in China, an online conference in Beijing uh, with the cover of the book and taped, uh, videotaped interviews with me done by a professor from Beijing University who came to Madison with her graduate student to record me talking about questions that she asked in Chinese and her graduate student translated for me and then translated my answers for Professor Wu. And this thing has reached thousands of teachers across China. Now, there is no way that a person like me could have sat down in whatever it was, you know, the early 90s and said, you know what, I'm going to write a book about education that's aimed at Chinese people, and, <laughs> you know, under <laughs> communist rule. <clears throat> and, yeah. and, and, you know, people in Serbia and people in Guatemala and LGBTQ plus folks and people of color and his, Hispanics. Now, I, that's my, that's what I'm aiming at, you know? And there's no way that a promo department at a publisher would have found that helpful. <laughs> so I stand by my answer, you know? It's, it's like, if you can do it from your own depths, you have a chance of reaching others. And then of course comes the craft of writing where my job is to say things clearly enough, compellingly enough, and maybe even beautifully enough to, 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 not, to, to deliver a book to the reader that, that where they, they're not saying, A, I don't really want to read this because there's nothing attractive about it, and B, I can barely understand what the guy is saying. You know, that's, I need to do that work as well as I can making a space for the reader so that the, because that's the work that only I can do as the author. I need to do it well so that the reader can do the work only the reader can do, which is to find out how his or her life intersects with this book, life and work intersects with this book, and then deploy it and employ it in whatever creative way they can. So that's the deal I have with my readers. And I love that, that kind of relationship, which I've been very lucky to have over the years. You know, I, 
I can't help but think this really kind of takes us full circle because we started our conversation today talking about how when you, and this was specifically in, in regards to teaching, when you can mine your deepest, truest self and bring that, it it liberates others to find their deepest, truest self. And in in, in your same it's deal. the same deal. It's kind of when you're same, so when I'm every, reading every... when I'm reading your deepest, truest self, it allows me to be liberated to interpret and use and enrich my life from my deepest, truest self. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. If you can find your story inside of my story, that's all I want, you know, and that's huge. That's a, that's a huge gift. Or if I can just simply trigger you to find your own story outside of my story, that's, right. that's, that, that's a joy. Right. And I think, you know, it's so interesting that you would say that, that we came full circle. We did. And that's because all of life is a fractal. You know, it's like every piece of it replicates every other yes. piece. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything we can name that doesn't follow the same logic. Right. So true. So true. And and I do want to thank you for the for the depths of truth you've brought to many subjects. You know, you mentioned the depression and we I appreciate your 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 honesty and, and frankness about that. I know you've probably impacted a lot of people with that writing. You're writing about um, habits of the heart and community and authenticity and all of these different areas that are really, truly enriching. Um, you know, this the, the title of this podcast is Teaching, Reading, and Learning. And uh, this has just been an opportunity, I think, for all of our listeners to really engage with learning with true learning what does true learning mean and how do how do we again as we're teachers bring that truth uh, in order to really engage our students in discovering their truth as well so thank you thank you for all of these gifts and i well, i and i and i i know our time is short it makes me sad but i i did ask you if you know if you would mind ending with a poem today and uh, yeah. you said that you would do that. I know poetry is very important to you and poetry is so important to the work. So if you could could um, end with that, we would be so Yeah, thank you, Lauren. And yes, before we sign off, let me just say what a joy this has been for me. If you'd like to do it again, I'd love to. And uh, all best and blessings to you and your listeners. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate this opportunity. So this is a poem I wrote and it's actually about an experience of depression. And it's a poem that helped me come out of it and um, you know, emerge from that very dark place over time. Um, it's a poem that means a lot to me. And uh, I've written a bunch of poems that for me, this is one of the best in the sense that it's true. Um, and it tells a story that I think is very relevant to our times. Uh, of, of many kinds of darkness and depression around everything from the pandemic to politics. And that's why I chose it, because I think it maybe leaves us with something mm -hmm. to think about, at least in terms of images. So it's a poem called Harrowing. And uh, since not everybody these days is close enough to the land to know what harrowing is to a farmer, harrowing is when you plow up the field in the spring. It's a rough plow that leaves fields looking very rough uh, that precedes a finer plow and then the planting of seeds. And I was uh, struggling with depression. I was down in Kentucky to, 
talk with a person whose wisdom I value about this experience. And I was out walking a country road uh, and I passed a harrowed field. And this is over a few days, the poem that emerged called Harrowing, which moves from the outer scene to the inner reality. Harrowing. The plow has savaged this sweet field. Misshapen clods of earth kicked up, rocks and twisted roots exposed to view. Last year's growth demolished by the blade. I have plowed my life this way, turned over a whole history, looking for the roots of what went wrong until my face is ravaged, furrowed, scarred. Enough, the job is done. Whatever's been uprooted, let it be seedbed for the growing that's to come. I plowed to unearth last year's reasons. The farmer plows to plant a greening season. I think that's what we need to be doing right now. Yes. We've done a lot of plowing, what went wrong. We've turned up a lot of stuff. It's there for us to work on. We need to start planting a greening season. I sometimes think that the most important word I've ever written at that depth of my journey is the word enough. enough. The job is done. Let's move on. Mm. Thank you. Thanks, Thank Laura. you for that. I just, Parker, I appreciate who you are in the world. I appreciate your wisdom and your kindness and your compassion and just my gratitude is to you today and, and always. Come back at you, my friend. Take good care. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Parker Palmer as much as I did. And I hope that you'll tune in for new episodes each month. We are going to continue to explore teaching, reading, and learning, and celebrate these wonderful guests and their contributions to our profession and to our professional growth. Uh, speaking of that, the Reading League is committed to offering you high-quality resources and professional development, along with a robust and growing community to support your work. If you are enjoying this podcast, please go to iTunes and rate us. We are so glad you're here, and we want to spread the word. Also, if you haven't done so already, please check out The Reading League at www.thereadingleague.org. We encourage you to become a member and join our community. Again, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.